Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Some of this is a very familiar passage. You've probably heard it many times. But uh, it's all about time. And I'm going to speak to you this morning on the subject of time. And it keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse number 1. To everything there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor and is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Father, Lord, we pray you'll guide and direct as we look at your word. Help us, Father, today. Help, help me today, I pray you fill me with your spirit. Forgive and cleanse of anything that might stand in the way of usefulness this morning. And help me, Father, to just preach this clearly, accurately, practically as a difficult passage for us to get our minds around it. I think I've struggled with it this week, and I pray that you'll just make it clear today. So guide us, direct us, help us, teach us from this passage. Uh, if there are those here today who don't know Christ, I pray that uh, the gospel comes forth in this. And uh, if there are those here today who know Christ but need something from this message as well, I pray you'll speak to them too. So uh, do a work in our hearts. Help us, Father, to be receptive. Teach us about time today. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Time is a problem we can all relate to, isn't it? It was 1976 that the Steve Miller Band came out with that particular song, Fly Like an Eagle, which contained that line, Time is Not I, I read the rest of it and I will not quote it. I don't understand a word of what they were saying. It might have been some drug addict stuff. I don't know. But uh, the title was good, or at least that line was good. And I think it kind of fits and kind of describes what Solomon was talking about here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We stated, this is our third week in Ecclesiastes, and we stated earlier that there were two looming problems with which Solomon was wrestling. One was death. The impending death that we all face. And we talked about that last week in chapter 2 where he spent some time on that. And, and now here in chapter 3, he's, he's going to talk about the other one, which is time. The, uh, the fact that time just marches on. And that there is uh, no, es 
onward march of time. He, uh, in the first half of this chapter here, he kind of divides his thinking up in two, two, two thoughts. In the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 11, his emphasis is on our earthly experience of time. Time under heaven, he said in verse number 1. And of course, that's another way of saying what we have said is one of his key phrases throughout this thing, that's under the sun. He was looking at this from the perspective of the secular, uh, not really bringing God into the equation. But, uh, in the second half, from 11 to 15, his emphasis does shift. And he starts looking at bringing eternity into the picture. And he does bring God into the equation there in verses 11 to 15. So I want to examine this this morning under three main thoughts. Number one, time under heaven, number two, time and eternity, and number three, some of his conclusions, because he did make a couple of conclusions here, which I think are useful to us. So first of all, time under heaven, verses 1 through 10. There are two truths that are mentioned in his opening statement. To everything there is a season, and there is a time for every purpose under heaven. Verse number one. That word purpose there refers to an activity or an event. It refers to the deliberate and willful acts of people. Actions taken by people. And he says that for all such willful acts, for all activities or events, for all actions taken by people, there is both a proper time, in other words, a point in time for it to occur, and a proper season, that is a duration of time, that it lasts. And I would suggest that each day is an example of that thought. I mean, each day begins with waking from sleep. Assuming you had any sleep the night before. But if you did, you wake from sleep and the day begins. Uh, you know, it, it goes on to a variety of tasks that, uh, and events which last for a period of time. We eat our breakfast, we drive to work, we perform our work, we have our lunch, we perform more work, we drive home. All of these are times that last for seasons. We can expand the thought beyond each day. We can expand it to the week, to a, a week, and see that it fits there, to each month, to each year, ultimately to the whole of our life. And so in verse number one, Solomon stated his thesis. He said, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then having stated that thesis as the proposition he wanted to consider, he then, uh, he went on and he, he provided us with this wonderful poem. There's a poem here, verses 2 through 8, which many of us have heard many, many times. Uh, in that poem, he listed 14 things that are opposites. You know, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. 14 things that are opposites, and each one happens at a point in time and lasts for a period of time, a season of time. And in his list spanned the entirety of a human life. And, and, and we see that from the very first one he mentioned, a time to be born and a time to die. We often read this poem at funerals. I have heard it done at funerals. I have done it, read it at funerals myself. Uh, because it's a time when we're gathering to look back over a person's life and to remember uh, that life. Pete Seeger turned that, song, that poem into a popular song. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season. Turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. Now the question is going to be, which song will be running through your mind 
throughout this entire sermon. You'll hear nothing else on the set now. You'll either be thinking, uh, you know, fly like an eagle, or you'll be singing that in your mind. Uh, it's amazing that the Pete Seeger song is basically just that entire passage right there. Now, in verse number one, he used the phrase under heaven, again, suggesting that his perspective was earthly. He was thinking of life. He was thinking of the answers to these questions solely from a human perspective. He was not considering God in the equation. But then, when we come to verses 9 and 10, we suddenly see God appear. And God was in his thinking. What is the profit of all this? He asked in verse number 9. And then in verse number 10, he noted that all this is from God. This God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. We haven't read much about God in this book. He hasn't brought God much into it at all. His perspective has been life lived under the sun. His perspective has been what I can figure out with my own wisdom. Secular. But at the end of chapter 2, he started to bring God into the picture. And now here in chapter 3, he builds on that doctrine. And so he says, to everything there is a season. And that's God given. He says, to everything there is a time. A time for every purpose. And that's God given. Jim Winter, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he, he, he wrote this. He said, each human life has a span, and within its duration there are momentous events. Man may see them as random happenings, determined by the role of the celestial base. But the Bible teaches that God has a chosen purpose for everything. He quotes Romans chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Man has mastered many things, but he has no control over time. Each moment is God-appointed, God-given. The psalmist wrote, my times are in your hands. Psalm 31, verse 15. And that's a verse that has always encouraged me and always does encourage me, uh, especially when I'm going through something I particularly don't want to go through. You know those times when you want to cry out to God, why the world am I going through this? That's a good verse to allow to come back into your mind. My times. Are in his hand. That particular time or season that we're experiencing is God given. Well, all this led Solomon to consider something else. Not only time under heaven, but time also in light of eternity. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Time and eternity. Notice verse number 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Some have suggested that that is the key verse in the whole book. Uh, it may be. I don't know. I think it's one of the key verses in the entire book. We've already mentioned the fact that chapter 1, verse number 2, when we read vanity of vanities, it says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's a key verse, because if you don't understand his mindset, you don't understand the book, but and that just permeates throughout that whole doleful lament that, that he's going through there. So that's a key verse. And we already mentioned that the second to the last verse of the book, uh, chapter 12 and verse number 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That's his whole, that's the summary of everything. That's what he finally arrives at. And so we've said that's also a key verse. Uh, I think both of those are very important. But this verse, verse 11, if it's not... The key verse is certainly one. It's, it's a vitally important. It, 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 it contains some truth that we cannot ask. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. 
except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. You understand what he's saying there? Maybe a couple of other translations will help. How about the New American Standard? He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. For the new living, which I think makes it pretty clear, yet God has made everything beautiful for his own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. It's an interesting verse. There's several thoughts that come to my mind from this. First of all, it has to do with that word beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That word translated beautiful means just that. It means beautiful, but it also has other meanings. It also means fitting or appropriate. It means that God, in his sovereignty, has an appropriate and fitting time for every activity and event. He has so ordered our lives that everything, every time, every season is just as he has made it. Again, I can't help but think of that psalmist's words. My times are in his hands. Then to that phrase, he has put eternity in their hearts, is fascinating. That may be my favorite phrase in the entire chapter. He has put eternity in their hearts. It means that a knowledge of God, an understanding that there is something more to this life. Well, it's in all of us. Because God put it there. Meditate on that thought for a moment. All of us, saved or lost, have that thought of eternity in our hearts because God put it there. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ wrote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And Solomon here said that that God-shaped vacuum in every heart, that that desire that nothing in this world can satisfy was put there by God. Paul wrote a similar truth to the Romans. He said in Romans chapter 1, he said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the fact that they are suppressing the truth implies that they have the truth. They at least knew somewhat the truth. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Can't be any clearer than that. God has made it clear. God has put eternity in their hearts. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. What an amazing truth that is. I mean, think about that a little bit. Here it is, a little person who claims God has put eternity in their hearts. I mean, think of the implications of that. Think of the implications. None of us can say that we had no idea there was a God. Well, I guess we can say it. But it would not be true. None of us can truthfully say it. None of us will be able to offer such a defense as the last judgment. Because God took that defense away from us. He put eternity into our hearts. We are not ignorant of His existence. We may not understand all there is to understand. We may not know all there is to know. But we do know that there is more 
And we do know that this life is not all. There is a yearning within every one of us for things eternal that God shaped back within us that remains unfulfilled until we turn our heart over to Him and let Him fill it. So there are two amazing thoughts from this verse that I see. First of all, God is in control of every time and season in our lives. He has fit each event, made each event appropriate and even beautiful in his plan. That's number one. And number two, God has put within us all a knowledge of the eternal. And then there's a third thought there in verse number 11. He said, no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Solomon recognized Realize that God is in control and is making every season and time in our lives perfectly into his plan. We also realize that God had put this eternal perspective within all of us, eternity in our hearts. But then he said, none of us can know all that God is doing. We know there's more to the story. We can't know all what it is. We have an inkling of the eternal, but we don't see it all. It's hidden. This is also a thought that's seen throughout Scripture. Solomon's not the only one who said this sort of thing. And he said it more than once. He said it in chapter 8. If we ever get that far in this study, we'll, we'll see it. In chapter 8, verse 17, Then I saw all the work of God, but a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Job's friend, so far the name of fight, when he was talking to Job. He said to him, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? Here's a question that meant to have an answer of, no, you can't. And Paul, the Romans write, wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways pass by him. And so there, and I'm sure we can find other places as well, all those voice thoughts similar to Solomon's here, when he said no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. But while that thought is true, I don't think it's as true as Solomon thought it was. At least not for us. I mean, the reality is God has revealed much to us if we will pay attention. We have more knowledge today than Solomon. We have additional truth that has been revealed to us in the Bible. We have the New Testament, which Solomon did not have. It tells of Jesus Christ. It tells of the one who came to save us from our sin, of the one who finished the work of redeeming our lost souls on the cross. We have the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on the church at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, whom, of whom Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Paul wrote that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us some of the things that had been hidden, that things Solomon wondered about, we could know more about because of the Holy Spirit. He said, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But, we oftentimes stop right there. We like to quote that verse. I have not seen, nor ear heard, 
But, he said, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So here in verse number 11, I think I see three absolutely wonderful truths that we really need to meditate on. Number one, God is in control of every time and season in our lives, has fit each event, made each event appropriate and beautiful in his plan for us. Number two, God has put within us all a knowledge of the eternal. And number three, we can know some of God's plan, but not all of them. At least that was Solomon's perspective. I suggest we can know more now than he did then. Well, so he's talked about time under the sun or under heaven, he's talked, and he's talked about time and eternity. And, and, and with that, Solomon came to a couple of conclusions in just the last few verses of this section, verses uh, 12 through 15. Twice in this section, I want you to notice he used the words, I know. I know. He said it in verse number 12. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. In those verses, that I know, introduced the conclusion, his conclusion, regarding the implications of all this in this life under the sun. His conclusion was, this life under the sun, thinking about all these things, time and all all, all that he's talked about regarding it. He said, here's the conclusion. We ought to rejoice, we ought to enjoy, eat, drink, and enjoy life as a gift from God. Live. Enjoy living. Enjoy what God has given. And, and, and the reality is, it's only when we view it from that perspective that we could possibly uh, enjoy it. When we view it only as he has been viewed up to this point, life lived under the sun from his perspective is just the, the perspective of no, no God, just secular. Well, there's no way. It's all meaningless. It's all vain. It's vanity of vanities. But when we see it as a gift of God, well, then every part of our lives becomes possible to enjoy and rejoice. So that's one. In verses 14 and 15, he again said, I know. Verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God doesn't mention fear before him. That which is has already been. And what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. And so here in these last two verses, he again uses that phrase, I know. And he again describes a conclusion. But this time it's regarding the eternal. This time it's regarding God. And what he's doing. Life beyond this one that we live under the sun or under heaven. And he noticed here, or noted here, that what God does is eternal. It is unchanging. And it is unchangeable. Not much use in our kicking against his leading. Not much use in our kicking against his will because it is forever. And nothing can be added to it or taken from it. It's going to happen. So we might as well enjoy the ride. It's going to happen. And he also noted here that God's purpose of the times and seasons in our lives is to draw us to himself. Notice verse number 14. God does it that men should fear before him. Fear God. We see that all throughout. We see it all throughout Ecclesiastes. And we see it in other places in the Bible as well, but all throughout Ecclesiastes. In chapter 5, verse 7, in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but... Fear God. In chapter 7, verse 18, it is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them 
all. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And then finally we mentioned this verse, chapter 12, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's own. God does it. All these things. He said, here's the conclusion in this section. God does it that men should fear before him. Warren Wiersbe had a good explanation of what Solomon meant here by fearing God. He said, and I quote, The proper attitude for us is the fear of the Lord, which is not the cringing of a slave before a cruel master, but the submission of an obedient child to a loving parent. If we fear God, we need not fear anything else. For he is and I love that last sentence. I love that. If we fear God, we need not fear anything else for he is in control. That's, I think, a good summary of what he's talking about here in Ecclesiastes. So let me ask you this. Are you struggling to understand what God's doing in your life? Do you question as Solomon did? You, you can know this. You can know that his ultimate purpose is to draw you to him. That's his ultimate purpose. To get you to turn your life over to him, if you haven't already done so. In the language of the New Testament, he's working to bring you to Christ. To trust Christ, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved, to be born again. That's his ultimate purpose in all of these things that he brings into your life. And in all of the times that you live. One last thing that Solomon mentions here, which is important. He said that God's purpose and plan includes something else. It includes an accounting. It includes a judgment. God requires an account. Verse number 15. You might want to underline that one in your Bible. God requires an account. The writer of Hebrews said something very similar when he said in Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Every one of us, you and me, everyone who has ever lived, ever will live after us, will stand before God. Everyone else. We will face the final judgment. Whether that is the judgment of believers, the judgment of the seed of Christ, or the judgment of the lost, the terrible great white throne judgment, God requires an account. So we need to think about that. Well, so let's sum it up. What, what, what do we learn from this crazy passage? Well, we learn, number one, that God, in his sovereign plan for us, perfectly and beautifully, Orders the times and seasons of our life. That we might know him and be drawn to him and turn our lives over to him. We learn, number two, that God has put a knowledge of himself and eternity in each of our hearts so that we are without excuse. So that we can never say we didn't know. So that we might be drawn to him and turn our lives over to him. And number three, that there is a coming judgment of how we have responded to these truths of whether or not we have turned our lives over to him, that God requires an account. Time does indeed keep on slipping and slipping and slipping into the future. Every moment of time is an opportunity for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to rejoice in God's sovereign oversight of our lives. Every moment of time. And every moment of time is an opportunity for those who have not yet given their life 
to hear God's call, to respond to it, to repent, to believe the gospel, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Every moment of time is one moment closer to judgment day, to the day when we all must give an account. And every moment of time, once gone, it's gone forever.